Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Right now, when you come in and switch to T-Mobile, you get the amazing iPhone 11 Pro on us with iPhone XS trade-in. <sighs> Aren't these mountains majestic? Joe, are you even looking? I'm posting these amazing pics I took with my iPhone 11 Pro. It has three cameras. Whoa, those pics are amazing. And you have service too? T-Mobile. Their newest signal goes farther than ever before. Uh, then you can look up whether these are bear tracks, right? Or we could just run. Come to a T-Mobile store today and get iPhone 11 Pro on us with iPhone XS trade-in. And right now, get four lines for just 30 bucks a line with AutoPay. Switch today. Contact us if you cancel or credits may stop in full price due, plus taxes and fees via 24 monthly credits for well-qualified customers with qualifying service and finance agreement. Zero down with trade-in plus 3125 times 24 months. Pre-credit price nine ninety nine ninety nine. 0% APR while supplies last. Right now, when you come in and switch to T-Mobile, you get the amazing iPhone 11 Pro on us with iPhone XS trade-in. <sighs> Aren't these mountains majestic? Joe, are you even looking? I'm posting these amazing pics I took with my iPhone 11 Pro. It has three cameras. Whoa, those pics are amazing. And you have service too? T-Mobile. Their newest signal goes farther than ever before. Uh, then you can look up whether these are bear tracks, right? Or we could just run. Come to a T-Mobile store today and get iPhone 11 Pro on us with iPhone XS trade-in. And right now, get four lines for just 30 bucks a line with AutoPay. Switch today. Contact us if you cancel or credits may stop in full price due, plus taxes and fees via 24 monthly credits for well-qualified customers with qualifying service and finance agreement. Zero down with trade-in plus 3125 times 24 months. Pre-credit price nine ninety nine ninety nine. 0% APR while supplies last. Welcome to Virtual and Podcast, episode 105, Unmissable Opinions, brought to you by the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community. Thanks again for tuning into the show. Tap in your app, check out the show notes. We have a lot of goodies there for you. You can follow us on social media, at the Barcelona Pod, or at D 13 for me on Twitter, on Instagram, at the Barcelona Pod. We have a closed Facebook group, tbpod.link backslash group for our La Ronda episodes. You're able to ask some listener questions there, get into some deeper dives and discussions. You can also help us out on Patreon to continue making these shows at tbpod.link backslash Patreon. The final piece, a note that I want to mention, though, also when you're subscribing, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, wherever, please leave us a review. It helps us get up the charts and helps us get into the ears of a few more people. So, again, 
Give us a little five-star rating. Say some nice things about the show. We really appreciate that. Let's get right into it today. We are joined by journalist and author Jonathan Wilson to talk about his new book, The Barcelona Legacy. So let's get right into that interview. Joined now by Jonathan Wilson, author of The Barcelona Legacy, Inverting the Pyramid, and much, much more. Thank you so much for joining the show, Jonathan. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Well, obviously, the topic we're talking about here on the Barcelona podcast is your new book, The Barcelona Legacy. And the first question I'll start off with this, and I I know throughout this interview, you're not going to want to give too much away about what's in the book, but I I just want to talk about the inspiration for your writing it. Was there a particular moment or match that inspired you to want to undertake a project like this? Um. I guess it's been brewing for a while, um, but I, I sort of I, I think when you had the coincidence of Mourinho replacing Van Gaal at Manchester United, plus Guardiola being there at City, and you sort of think, well, these three huge figures uh, were all at Barcelona together. You also had Ronald Koeman, who at you know, the time was at Everton, obviously things didn't work out from there, but you know, he he'd been at Barcelona at the same time, and then you had Luis Enrique, who was you know, had won the Champions League with, with Barcelona. Um, as, as a manager, uh, and he'd been at Boston at the same time. You sort of think, well, this is an extraordinary meeting of of people who go on to be very significant managers. And okay, Koeman, you can slightly leave to one side, but but still, yeah, he's had a very very good career. And the fact he's now in charge of the Netherlands, the fact he sort of is is the um, almost a custodian of that total football philosophy, which which has inspired Barcelona. Um, you know, that I found fascinating. You sort of then start saying, well, what, what were training sessions like there? What, what, what was the discussion like? What, was it this sort of great seminar as, as you sort of hope it might be? And I also I sort of began thinking, well, is this just something that happens? Is this a normal thing? And I, I, I mean, it is possible that as, as the gulf between the richest clubs and, the, and, the, and the, the, the poorer clubs grows and success and the ability to buy the best players becomes concentrated in a few hands, Maybe this will become more common that you'll you'll get these big clubs become these sort of great you know, petri dishes for the football of twenty years hence. But I look right back through football history, and I think really the only other club you can say that had a similar had a similar influence of of really dominating world football for yeah you know, twenty twenty five years in, in terms of their their legacy was the Budapest club MTK back in the nineteen twenties, and that's a very very different circumstance that those were. Um, players, I mean, I won't go into this in too much because it's my next book, and I realise it's not what people are listening for. But you know, those were players who um, the reason they were significant was that Budapest was a centre of, of world football at the time, but economically, politically, it was a complete basket case, and players were looking to leave constantly. And you then throw in fascism and anti Semitism in the 30s, and a lot of those players who, who played Entercar when they were a great side in the early 20s. They end up having to go to Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, Sweden, Italy, France, Germany, um, and so they take those ideas and they, they, they then, because their ideas are more advanced than the rest of the world, they, they become very significant. And so you, you have Epticard in the nineteen twenties, and then you have Barcelona in the late nineties. And in the late nineties, you see that they are they are carrying on, they are evangelising the ideas that Johan Cruyff had left. And I think that interplay between Ajax, between the Dutch and Barcelona has been incredibly significant in terms of shaping how how football, at least at the elite level, is is, is played today. Well, I actually don't think the, the, the when you speak about the Hungary, even though it was a different era and those aren't the same players that play a role at Barcelona, it does seem that Hungarian footballers do have a legacy at Barcelona. So I don't think it's that far off. But but to 
you mentioned that Jose Mourinho, he's one of obviously the first names you mentioned. He's on the cover art with Pep Guardiola. And it's been funny to me. And the most the most interesting thing I, I think that stood out to me when when I when I heard and obviously we listened to your podcast as well that we refer people over to. It's a six part series. You go through matches about this as well. But anyway, with Jose Mourinho, I guess at what point in this story did you figure out that not only was he going to be a big role player in your book and in the narrative, but he is this antithesis of, of Barcelona football to. to to people who root for Barcelona, and he does seem to be this great villain. So at what point did you feel like you knew that he was going to have to have just as big of a role and be a central figure in this story? I can tell you exactly when that happened, actually. And it, this, this is a, a very odd story, I recognize. But um, I, I play for, for a number of different cricket teams, and one of them is a team that's existed for over a century called The Authors. And to play for it, you have to, to have written a book. And so the original team had people like Arthur Conan Doyle and, and Jan Barry, you know, the creator of Peter Pan. Um, P.G. Woodhouse played for it at some point. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a kind of quite well-established team. And um, a couple of years ago, um, we, we played a game um, in Rome. We, we, went, we went to play the Vatican's team. The Vatican had sort of tried this sort of evangelizing through football, and they realized that actually their, their big boom areas tend to be the uh, you know, South Asia, so where cricket is a much much more popular sport than football. And so they began um, looking to put together a cricket team to, to, to help you know, spread their message. And so they, you know, they got a team of seminarians, most of whom are from, from South Asia. Uh, I, I think the team we played, there was, there was one English guy and then one Pakistani, a couple of Sri Lankans, and the rest are all Indians. And so we went to Rome to play them. And we was, it was a day when I was writing a, a column for The Guardian um, and I was sitting in St. Peter's Square and looking at you know, all the statues and everything there. And I was sort of thinking, thinking back to, to doing Paradise Lost when I was at university, and sort of thinking, actually, you know, this all links together, that Mourinho is exactly Satan as Milton conceives him. And I think I'm not suggesting that, that Joseph Mourinho is the devil, but what <laughs> I mean is that he has that sort of um, that quality of being a fallen angel. He was part of of the firmament in the late 90s. He was part of the Barcelona establishment and yet somehow never quite felt part of it. Felt he was an outsider within that. Felt um, resented by the people who were there. Felt not quite accepted by them. And you see that very, very clearly. Uh, we don't know what the players thought necessarily, but in the way the media reacted to him, that they always called him the translator. You know, they never accepted that he'd gone beyond that. Because yeah, when he arrived, he was the translator for Bobby Robson. But very quickly, he becomes becomes a coach, and he, you know, he, he's Louis Van Gaal's second assistant coach. He, ha- he has Ronald Koeman, and then he has Mourinho. So he was, just, you know, a senior coaching figure, and was never respected by the the entorno around Barcelona. And I, I think, I think right from the start, there was that that little seed of doubt there that he didn't quite feel they'd taken him seriously. And of course, the proof of this is in 2008, when Frank Rijkaard is, is about to leave. Um, you know, he recognises his, his time is over, and the, the Barcelona's choice essentially comes down to two people. It comes down to Jose Mourinho or Pep Guardiola. So on the one hand, you have Mourinho, who's won the Champions League with with Porto, who's won. You know, he's a serial winner. You know, he's, he's won league titles um, in, in in both Portugal and, and in England. Uh, he's taken Chelsea to heights that Chelsea never previously reached. So you have him, the, the, the um, experienced, proven candidate, and you have Guardiola, who's had one season in charge of Barcelona's reserve side. When he did very, very well, 
but with the reserve team. And Mourinho thinks there's no way he doesn't get that job. He thinks all logic means he gets that job and he doesn't get the job. And so I think that for him was proof that Barcelona never quite wanted him. They never quite accepted him. And I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying I think that's how he perceived it. And Mark Engler, who was you know, a, a senior director at the time and has gone on to, to Lille since, and Mark Engler uh, interviewed Mourinho in a bank in, in Lisbon. Um, he did it at the bank so that the, the press wouldn't, wouldn't find out these conversations were going on. And Mourinho went and he, he gave this great presentation, as he'd given to Roman Abramovich at Chelsea, as he would subsequently do to Ed Woodward at, at, at Manchester United. And he explained what he would do with the club. And... England decided that despite that, despite the fact he had these very um, detailed, well-thought-out plans, that there was something about Mourinho that wasn't quite right. That the way he handled the press, his reluctance to promote players from the youth academy, which obviously has been a large part of Barcelona's success over the years, um, that, that he somehow didn't embody the ethos of the club in the way that Guardiola did. And so England's phrase was, from that moment, Mourinho was poisoned against Barcelona. And I think you see that happening very, very clearly. Mourinho changes at that moment. And, you know, he goes on, he has great success at Inter, some success at Real Madrid, and now he, you know, he's struggling at Manchester United. But I think there's been a, a change in him in the way he approaches football. Uh, the way his Porto side played, certainly in the league, was in that Cruyffian tradition. It wasn't necessarily pure Cruyff, but it was influenced by Cruyff. They press side of the pitch, they like to keep the ball. And, of course, in, in, in European games... Occasionally, he had to temper that. He didn't have the players necessarily to play that way. So he was always pragmatic. He, you know, he wasn't a, an ideologue. Um, at Chelsea, there's a bit of a backsliding. But it's from 2008 when it's, it's as though Mourinho says, right, whatever Barcelona are, I am not. If they want to play a high line, I'll play a low block. If they want to play with the ball, I'll play without the ball. And that's why I think he's part of this tradition. You know, it's not like Diego Simeone or Jurgen Klopp he's not somebody who's who's learned this football in a completely different school he's learned it in the same school and he's drawn the inverse conclusions and of course his, his great moment of triumph his, his great uh, vindication in that uh, anti-philosophy if you like or, or philosophy of, of, of anti-coifianism is the, the, the semi-final in, um, in 2010 when Inter go to the Camp Nou and they, yeah, they lose 1-0 but win, win the tie 3-2 and get 19% possession. And he's able to say, look, you think it's all about the ball. I just won with 19% of the ball. So that, that's, I think, why he's such a, a fascinating figure, that he, he is this fallen angel character. And of course, like Milton Satan, he's very, very charming. At least he was very, very charming. He has this great way with words. He's somebody that, although you know that there's something a little bit Machiavellian, a little bit... Um, What's the best word for it? You know, there's, there's a cunningness to him. It's it, you know, he he he's prepared to indulge in the dark arts, but he charms you. So in that sense, he's you know, he's, he's in that great um, tradition of, of anti-heroes, of whom Milton Satan is absolutely one, or something like Richard III. He's somebody you instinctively warm to, even though you know you wouldn't quite trust him. Yeah, and I, I think his story paralleling, I guess, because that's the two stories that are being told really in your book. It's the story of Mourinho. And it's also the story of, of Barcelona. They're not to say rise and fall of, of this empire, but almost the the beginnings, the roots of Guardiola's era and where that came from with, from Cruyff then. Not totally covered, but as we not head down to the, the rest of the empire, but 
you focus on the dismantling of Alex Ferguson's Manchester United, but as you just mentioned, you also focus on the loss to Jose Mourinho's Inter Milan as being a pivotal part of this Barcelona story that sur- that surrounds Guardiola. And I mean, with your expertise as tactics, did you find that it wasn't just a story of the the people and the the narrative of Guardiola and Mourinho, but rather what effect did this have on tactics? Did you find that between Cruyff and, and Guardiola and then Guardiola even combating what Mourinho was trying to do, did you feel like there was a linear evolution of specific tactics and the way it was just ever evolving at Barcelona? Yeah, I'm not sure necessarily linear, but, but yeah, I, I think what Guardiola does is a, is a very conscious, you're know, yanking it back to Cruyff. And you know, obviously, Rijkaard has is, is come from that tradition there. Rijkaard played under Cruyff. Um, yeah, I mean, Reichardt's story is itself kind of an, an astonishing one. That his record as a coach was was dismal. You know, when he gets the Barcelona job. He's, he's been in charge of the Netherlands when they went out in the semi-final of Euro 2000 when they hosted it, which is at best it's par. Being generous, that's a par performance. He then gets Sparta Rotterdam relegated for the first time in their history, and so he's on his way to manage the Dutch Antilles when he gets a call from Barcelona. And I think that's an interesting thing about Barcelona as a club, that they don't necessarily look at past records, they look at philosophy. But then he's very successful at Barcelona, you know, wins the, their, their, their second Champions League, um, beats a very good Arsenal in the, in the final in 2006. Um, and then you know, there's, a, there's a decadence that sets in, which, which Guardiola has to, has to, has to sort out. Um, but yeah, Guardiola, I think, is, is, is almost pure at Cruyff. You know, he's almost more Cruyff than Cruyff. There's a return to the, the, those core principles. Um, I, yeah, slightly adjusted for for, for you know, the modern age, and filtered through his conversations with people like Marcelo Bielsa and Juan Mario, uh, Ricardo La Volpe, uh, uh, Menotti, who he went to visit. You know, he, he's he's taken the, the basic philosophy and he's talked to other people and he's amended it. Uh, but Cruyff is is clearly a, um, a you know, when Guardiola gets the job, Cruyff is clearly his biggest supporter, and they had that very disappointing start where they didn't win either of their first two games. Uh, they, they even lost in the in the Copa de Catalunya, um, but Cruyff says to him, "Keep going. You know, this this is right. You don't worry about the results. The process is good. And if you keep on on this path, you you will prosper." As, as of course, uh, you know, he does. And I think you're know, looking back on on my time as a journalist. I mean, I've I've, I've been doing the job for 19 years now, and by far the most interesting time was that period of of Guardiola's ascendancy at Barcelona and Mourinho's attempt to pull it down. And of course, the beautiful thing about this story is it's partly a story about tactics, it's partly a story about philosophies, but it's also a great human story. You know, the characters in it are, are brilliant. Um, and so you have with, with Barcelona you know, this idea that they're playing this sort of pure football, and that feeds into this whole Mexican club idea, this, this idea that you know, they're not any other club. They, they have ideals, and you know, they have the UNICEF sponsorship. Um, and that there's a... You know, they, they are the force of, of good, and Mourinho is the force of darkness against them. And that, that actually leads to something quite unpleasant, I think, in Barcelona. Um, and I, I don't want people to get the idea buying the book that this is sort of a, a pro-Barca book. It's, a, it's, I hope, an even-handed book. And I, I found something in, in, that, in that period, those four years when, when Guardiola was, was Barcelona manager, there was a great beauty to the football. I loved watching the football. I, I loved seeing how they played. But I also found there was something slightly sanctimonious about the team. Right? Um, there was the way they, they would hound referees, the way they'd seem aggrieved if anybody tried to be physical against them. And so 
from from some in some ways, I saw where Mourinho was coming from while preferring the football that the, the Barcelona were playing. And so you then have this this great narrative that unfolds of Barcelona being absolutely brilliant for three years, twice being Manchester United in the Champions League final. The Manchester United side who I was seeing week in week out in the Premier League, and you know, I knew how good they were, but couldn't touch Barcelona in the final. In between those those two two finals against United, you then have the, the astonishing drama of, of, of the Icelandic volcano erupting, Barcelona having to travel by by bus to Milan. Um, I mean, who knows how much they were affected by that, but actually quite well beaten by Inter in, in the first leg. Okay, could have had a penalty late on, which would have made it three two. It was questioned offside about one of the goals, but three one was not a, a, an unrealistic reflection of the game. And th- and then I think perhaps the, the, the most fascinating game I've ever watched when Barca win one nil in that, 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 that second leg, but they even against ten men they can't quite break them down. And while I, I absolutely would not want all football to be one team with eight percent of the ball and one team with twenty percent, in that specific moment. That was fascinating to witness and to see how you could win without the ball and how shape could frustrate possession. And that, I thought, was fascinating, that, that, that tactical wrangle. Uh, and then, of course, you know, this becomes a much more poisonous, much more personal battle when, when Mourinho turns up in, in Spain and you had those incredibly toxic four games in, in the two and a half weeks of the league game, the, the Copa del Rey final. So the, you know, the league game is the draw, which pretty much guarantees pass of the title. Um, Real Madrid win an extra time in the, in the Copa del Rey final and then the, 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 the two Champions League semis which okay the second leg ended up being a little bit flat but the first leg is this incredible sort of tension around it and we almost forget about the, the brilliant goal that Messi scores in, in, in that game and you know the second goal there is, a, is an astonishing goal to score that in a, against your closest rivals in a Champions League semi-final and yet Mourinho's control of a narrative his, his ability to direct the press to talk about the thing he wants to talk about what we think about when we think about that game is Pepe being sent off. Uh, sending off, I don't even think it was controversial, and yet somehow Mourinho managed to make it this. This, this, this that's the moment we remember that he, he he managed to sort of deflect attention from Messi's genius. And then, you know, the the, the following season, you know, Guardiola said after those four games that, that he'd won the battle, but he, he lost the war, he, he lost the appetite, he lost the energy in those four games. The level of attrition was so much. And so, and so that's a you know that is a a fascinating four-year period, a fascinating four-year cycle of a rise, a setback, a rise, but that rise is actually the thing that finishes them off. And there is something very classical about the drama of that. That is a, a Greek tragedy. It is Shakespearean. And it, there is something universal. There is something archetypal about that. So being able to, to witness that in real time and then being able to write about it in, in retrospect when you sort of know the ending, that, that's a huge privilege. There's very few football writers have, have had that opportunity. And, you know, it's, a, it's a great thing to be able to talk about. We'll finish up with Messi in just a second. But before that, um, it, again, not just even the managers, but when you talk about those characters, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, for just one season, he has this just incredible part of the, the Guardiola coaching narrative, at least. And two of the terms that I would bring up, and I want to know how you dealt with these two terms in the book, that when you look at, whether it be social media or even journalists in, in, in print and online, the terms Barcelona DNA and then, of course, tiki-taka, and the connotation of those two terms when Guardiola's Barcelona were defeating Real Madrid 5 nothing, Barcelona DNA and tiki-taka were revered terms, but now the farther away in the past that, this, that, 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 that era is of Guardiola's Barcelona, 
it seems like they've taken a little more of a negative connotation. So how did you, in this book, handle not only those two terms, but when you have other figures like Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who tremendous, one of the best ever in his own right, but not necessarily a player that particularly fit into Barcelona's narrative? Yeah, I think tiki-taka is a difficult term because you know, at the time I was using it, and I, I, to be honest, I was using it in a way that I think was confusing. And so I've now, I know I try not to use the term because the way we used it in English at the time was just to describe that Barcelona way of playing. That, that sort of post-Croyfian, high press, maintain possession, lots of short passes, everything sort of funneled through, through Xavi. And you know, I just thought that was called tiki-taka. I, I've subsequently realised from, from, you know, speaking to Guardiola at various press conferences and things, that it's a term he despises. And when it was first used in Spanish, it had a very negative connotation. And it sort of, it meant sort of, you know, pretty, pretty passing, all, all for show and no real final product. Well, that, that Barcelona clearly did have final product. And so, uh, it, it, I, I, I don't think, I just think there's a confusion that the English and Spanish connotations of a term are so different that it's probably best for me as an English writer to, to avoid that. Because mm-hmm. um, you know, a term was was coined, I think, by Javier Clemente as a, as a term of abuse. Sort of his athletic uh, Bilbao were a very robust, very direct team, and so he would mockingly use tiki taka to describe the opposite of that, which was Barcelona and all this sort of fine passing, but but you know, never went anywhere. This sort of art for art's sake. Um, so you know, I, I, I think it's more useful to talk of a post Cruyffian style than talk of tiki taka. Um, but I mean, the whole issue of Barca DNA, I think, is fascinating. Um, and I, I think very few clubs can honestly say they have a, D, a DNA. That they, that they can say they have a... Uh, I mean, I, again, I'm slightly uncomfortable with the use of DNA because that suggests that somehow um, you're, you're born with it. Yeah. Clearly, that's not the case. Clearly, it's a learned um, characteristic that you have players who've come from outside of Barcelona, outside of Catalonia... Lionel Messi being an obvious example, who gets there age eleven from the other side of the Atlantic, but you know very quickly understands the philosophy and adapts the philosophy and becomes part of the philosophy. But they are one of the very few clubs who who have a, a clearly defined philosophy, and they've ne- it's never been so defined, or at least post Cruyff, it's never been so defined as it was under Guardiola. And I think the the there, there's an advantage of that, which is that players who grow up in the system, players who grow up in La Masia. They, they know how, how to play in the way their club wants them to play, and that doesn't change particularly. And so you can you always hope you can promote from, from, from within. You always hope you can promote from your own academy, and then you would buy players to supplement that. But the, the, And that, that's fine as long as you've got players coming through the academy. And one of the things that Guardiola was fortunate was that he inherited a group, a group of players where you had Messi, you had Busquets, you had Piquet, you, you had Xavi, you um, Iniesta, you had people who come through who knew that style of play, so it was, it was quite easy for him to. I was, I was about to say impose this philosophy, because not even imposing for him to allow the team to play in that philosophy. That was a very natural process. The danger is, and, and I think this is one of the things that went wrong in that fourth season, is that you can't guarantee you're going to have that that flow of players. No academy in the world can guarantee that you will produce two or three first team quality players every year that just doesn't happen you have highs you have lows and once you get in the low then it becomes very difficult to bring players in um, or if you have a, you know, a, a particular deficiency in, an air, in one particular area of the team it's not as easy as it is for other teams just buy a player drop him in 
and I think you see that with um, Ibrahimovic is, is probably the best example but also like um, uh, Dmitry Shigrinsky who, who arrived at the same time they just couldn't cope they couldn't accommodate themselves to that style it is possible David Villa was able to, to adapt to it but it's, it's not for all players and then of course the, the, the beauty of, of, of it being Ibrahimovic is he's one of the most eloquent and outspoken players you'll ever find and so when he then dissects Guardiola a man he clearly didn't get on with and didn't like and you know, he calls him a little professor and he describes the Barca team as being like schoolboys and, and you know, that's a, a really sort of emotive, colourful, interesting um, way he talks about it uh, so, so it's, you know, it's not just another player moaning it's a, I mean, it is another player moaning but he's doing it in a way that um, is I, th- I think I mean, A it's amusing and B I think pretty, pretty apt, pretty pertinent and that, that is the danger when you have this this um, very specific way of playing. It means that outsiders can't easily be accommodated. I think what we're seeing with Barcelona now is there's been a, a you know, I think it happened that it began with Luis Enrique, who of course was not from La Masia. He was an outsider who came in, but he came himself to Vigo. He came from Real Madrid. You know, Cruyff's last act as manager was to persuade Luis Enrique to leave Real Madrid to go to Barcelona. So I think he understood what it was to be an outsider. And his team went to Champions League has got Neymar and Luis Suarez up front with Messi. So there was a move towards a more celebrity-driven approach there. I think that was probably a necessary move at the time, that Barcelona, when you play that very pure style, you can be quite predictable. I think opponents have worked out how to play against that. Um, you can argue there's a great beauty in the purity of the Guardiola side, but in terms of effectiveness, what Suarez and what Neymar gave them, that dribbling ability in the final third, the ability to beat a, a, a low block, the, um, you know, the, the mala leche, as, as Cruyff put it, of Stoichkov, that, Su- that, that Suarez brings, that, that sort of that ruthlessness, um, which maybe people from the Masia don't quite have. Life's been quite comfortable for them. They don't have the hardness of, that you have if you grow up on the, you know, the streets in Uruguay. Um, that maybe that, that, that slight diversification is, was necessary at the time. But I think what we see now is that Barcelona have, have veered quite, quite sharply from that path. And I think that. They're almost going through a crisis of identity as a club. Why are they different now? I'm not sure they are. But they've replaced a lot of those players who came through the mass here and they've bought in a lot of talent. Still a very good side, but they're a very good side in a very different way to, to what they were under Guardiola. Yeah, well, you, you had brought up Messi in that answer, and this is how this is the final question. We'll wrap this one up here. But, well, firstly, I, I do want to preface this by saying that, obviously, you've already written a book about not only Messi, but Argentinian football and the history of Argentina football. And that's called Angry with Dirty Faces. We'll have that in the link in the show notes as well, so you can check that out. But I think it's almost impossible to completely you know, finish this off with the epilogue of your book and your story. It does kind of wind up in Manchester currently with Guardiola at City and with Mourinho at United. And that does seem to be, you know, this, not a, it's not a final chapter, obviously, but it, it seems to be just a continuation uh, of, of some of the themes going on in your book. But again, the, with the whole idea of the whole book being called The Barcelona Legacy, it seems to me that Messi did have a, a place to play then. And obviously he does in this continuation where almost the, the, the third prong of this story, I think not only remains in Barcelona, but a large part of that is with Lionel Messi as he's always represented that era by gone. And as you were telling this story, I guess to talk about Messi back then, 
We can talk about tactics. We talk about the emotional reactions, the press conferences, the struggles between Mourinho and Guardiola and some of those inspired performances. But you did talk about that match where where Pepe got sent off and the majesty of of Messi and those moments that it seems like he's immune to the pressure of the moment. And it seems like all that, all the, the banter and the emotion doesn't affect him in those times. And while he obviously has not been perfect in all those matches, how did he fit and his individual brilliance fit into this narrative for you? Did you find that it was a, a nature versus nurture type debate that, you know, was he just always going to be that good or was this Guardiola kind of creating this perfect Barcelona footballer for him at the time? I, I think it's a combination of the two. I mean, he was, he was clearly an extraordinarily naturally gifted player. Uh, and, you know, the, the story of how you know, he, he didn't play football for, until he was, I, th- I think he, he was four. And they'd go to his grandmother's house every every weekend, and his brothers would be out playing in the street with his with their with their father. And one day, you know, Messi wanders out, and they, they they sort of oh okay he's going to join us. And suddenly he starts doing things that his elder brothers have never been able to do. <laughs> and you know he he never kicked a ball before. So there's something very um, very natural about the way he plays. Um, but then clearly, Barcelona has helped him enormously. Uh, and they, they've helped him not not just in a, you know, uh, providing a tactical framework that that genius can express itself within, but to be honest, just getting him out of Rosario when they did, um, you know, you can argue that of all the things Barca have done for Messi, the most valuable was getting him away from Newell's. I mean, Newell's is a club uh, with, a, with, you know, with great history, a great tradition. Um, you can argue the 1978 World Cup was was sort of one on. On the training field at Newell's back in the early seventies, that's that's where Manotti sort of learned learned the game. But they they've had a lot of problems with organised crime in in um, in Rosario and the Newell's in particular. There's a, a you know a lot of instances of um, youth coaches being intimidated by the Barras Barras by by the, the local hooligan firms, who essentially are fronts for organised crime. Um, you're demanding that they sell players at particular time so that they can get take their cut. So getting getting Messi out of that madness, and I think you make a very clear contrast with Carlos Tevez. Um, you know, Tevez came from a much rougher background. You know, Tevez he grew up in a in a, um, a, 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 a very poor area, Buenos Aires, a, you know, not much more than a shanty town, and you know, he he had a very very difficult home life in in his early days. Messi was the the, the son of a of a factory manager, so. Um, yeah, I don't think you'd say he was wealthy. You probably might even say he was middle class, but it, it was not a not an uncomfortable background. But but in, in, you know, in football terms, Tevez finds himself in that world of organised crime very very quickly, and he knows people from his from his childhood who are, are I don't want to say kind of not good people, but are people who are mixed up with some pretty dangerous people. And you know, his brother was in jail for a long time for armed robbery on a on a, um, a post office van. Um, and what that means is that Tevez is vulnerable because his brother sitting in jail is very vulnerable. If organised crime wants to do something with Tevez, his brother was there that they could get at him. Messi was, was taken away from that very, very early in life. So he, he might not have gone that way anyway because his background is a little bit different. But Barcelona guaranteed that he wouldn't fall into that, that way of life. Um, and I think that's something you always have to remember. With, with, I mean, you know, I, I, I know Argentina, I guess, better than most places. Um, but certainly with Argentinians, I, I guess it's true with a lot of people from South America and you know, may, maybe other places as well. You, you've got to be aware of the pressures 
that can be exerted on, on players' families and on, on where they've come from. So Barca came away from that. La Masia is clearly one of the best places to learn how to play football in the world. It's a place that appreciates talent and technique, no matter how big you are. And that was particularly in his younger days was a, a big issue for Messi. He was very small. They provided him with the the um, growth hormones, which allowed him to to grow to you know, whatever he is five foot five, five foot six. You know, he's still not huge, but you know, big enough to play professional football. Um, and then you know he gets the perfect coach for him. You know, he, he gets Guardiola, a, a coach who. Is, is all about natural talent. It's not about running. It's not about uh, physical aggression. I mean, he's about running in the sense of pressing, in the sense of keeping your shape, in the sense of um, sort of dynamic energy. But it's not about physicality in the way we don't understand it in English. It's not about muscularity. Um, and then you know, the, the flip side of that is the the, the, the problem with the boss system is it can be predictable. If, it, if it's just a thousand passes every match, well, teams start to be able to work out how to cut that out. But you have a thousand passes, you give it to Messi, he dribbles past three players and scores, and there's nothing you can do about that. So he gave them that extra factor, that, that um, unpredictability, that, that unstoppability, um, that, that meant teams couldn't just sit up with a low block against them, because if he did so, Messi was going to run through you, and he was either going to get fouled or he was going to score. So, yeah, Messi was perfect for Barcelona, Barcelona was perfect for Messi. Wonderful stuff, Jonathan. I'm going to ask you the most difficult question of the day now, and that's where can people follow your work? And I know it's a ton of different places. And the I guess for this show, where is the best place to get a copy of your book as well? Uh, I'm in The Guardian twice a week. Um, I write for Sports Illustrated's website as well. So particularly around the Champions League, you can find me there. Um, the magazine I run is, is theblizzard.co.uk, which is a quarterly, uh, which... Uh, he tries to take a longer form approach to, to football, tries to give space to articles that um, more mainstream media would, would would struggle to find a platform for. And then, you know, I mean, I've 10 books now, which Barcelona Legacy is the most recent. Uh, if you want the UK edition, uh, you can get that, I mean, I guess you can order it from, from local bookstores. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it from uh, my publishers at Blink. So you can get Blink's website, you can order it there. If you want to wait for the US edition, that'll be out in November, and that's called the Barcelona Inheritance. So Barcelona Legacy is the UK version, Barcelona Inheritance is the US version. I don't understand why that is, but for whatever reason, they've got different titles, one in the UK, one in the US. It's the same book. And buy it twice for all means if you want to, but it's the same, just with the US spellings. Well, Jonathan, again, thanks so much for joining the show, and again, click in those show notes and check out all the things that Jonathan has done. Again, Jonathan, thanks so much. Cheers, thanks for having me. And so that wraps up another edition of the Barcelona Podcast. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Or the Barca. Right now, when you come in and switch to T-Mobile, you get the amazing iPhone 11 Pro on us with iPhone XS trade-in. <sighs> Aren't these mountains majestic? Joe, are you even looking? I'm posting these amazing pics I took with my iPhone 11 Pro. It has three cameras. Whoa, those pics are amazing. And you have service too? T-Mobile. Their newest signal goes farther than ever before. Uh, then you can look up whether these are bear tracks, right? Or we could just run. Come to a T-Mobile store today and get iPhone 11 Pro on us with iPhone XS trade-in. And right now, 
Get four lines for just 30 bucks a line with AutoPay. Switch today. Contact us if you cancel or credits may stop in full price due, plus taxes and fees via 24 monthly credits for well-qualified customers with qualifying service and finance agreement. Zero down with trade-in plus 3125 times 24 months. Pre-credit price $999.99. Zero percent APR while supplies last. And now, a thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to take a spirit animal quiz online. Please be the cheetah. Please be the cheetah. And learn your animal isn't the cheetah, but the far less appealing blobfish. Oh, come on. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 blobfish minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to Geico. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.